Welcome to The Brain Trust, a physician's guide to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, brought to you from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. I'm Dr. Kate Rowland, family physician, member of the IAFP, and faculty at Rush University. Funding for this podcast series was provided by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health. The goal of The Brain Trust and this podcast series is to educate and empower the primary care clinician in the early detection, diagnosis, and management of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Clinical resources, free CME, and other educational materials are available online at thebraintrustproject.com. CME credit is available for each podcast. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the Accreditation Council of Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information on how to receive credit can be found on the Brain Trust Project website. Thank you for joining us as we empower each other and provide training on the early detection of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And now, today's episode. So welcome everybody to uh, the Brain Trust, our podcast series about the early detection of Alzheimer's and related dementias. My name is Raj Shah, and I'll be your moderator today. I'm a professor of family and preventive medicine at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center at Rush University in Chicago. And today we have a wonderful and very innovative and exciting session uh, where we'll be talking about how we best utilize information in the electronic health record to assist primary care physicians, family physicians in the early detection of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And our hope today, as far as some of the learning objectives, is that we'll go over some of the tools that can be used to screen for dementia that are, can be discreetly stored within the EHR, our electronic health record, and tracked over time. And we'll discuss some of the future directions, the good, the bad, the ugly, about the use of augmented intelligence or artificial intelligence and the early detection of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So I've had the pleasure of driving almost two and a half hours down I-57 to meet our guest today, who's welcoming me at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and that's Professor Ravi Shankar Iyer, who's the George and Ann Fisher Distinguished Professor of Engineering and Professor of Electric Engineering and Computer Science at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Iyer is also an affiliate faculty at the Mayo Clinic and also at the Carl College of Medicine. And we're really glad to be able to spend some time with him today. So Dr. Iyer, thank you for uh, allowing me to stop by at Urbana-Champaign and to uh, meet you today. Great to have you here. All right, and I think we, we also have a special treat that we've been able to call in your colleague that you've been working with at the University of Illinois Chicago campus, and that's uh, Dr. Carl Kokendorfer, who's the Assistant Vice Chancellor for Health Affairs and the Chief Health Information Officer and Associate Chief Medical Officer. Carl is also an Associate Professor of Clinical Family and Community Medicine at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System. So Carl, I think we've got you online with us today. Uh, hopefully you can hear us okay. How's it going? Thanks. I can hear you just fine. Thanks for all of uh, uh, being here with uh, Ravi today. I, I probably should have done it the opposite way where I could have walked over from Rush to see you, Carl, just about 10 minutes away, sort of driving two and a half hours. But it's it's always nice to uh, take the route down I-57 to go to Urbana-Champaign. So today, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of how we best help primary care physicians in this sort of conundrum of early diagnosis. And m maybe if I can just frame it a bit, is if you think 
there are younger people that get Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, but the population most at risk around the world are people over age 65. And in the United States, we're already at about 56 million people that are over the age of 65. And in the next 30 years, we estimate that to grow to about 90 million. And we're not going to grow our primary care workforce to match that, and especially to go one by one in annual Medicare visits to be able to identify every single person at risk and to do it every year. So it's going to take us some you know, novelty about how do we scale things and use resources we already have available. So I was curious, Carl, that we have you on the phone, you know, just in, in your practice in the UFI system, sort of what are the patients you're seeing in your primary care practices, especially the ones at risk for dementia? If you can just give us a sense of what you're seeing. Sure. And just to give you a little background, you know, I practice at our University Village Clinic location within UI Health. It's the health care delivery arm of the University of Illinois, Chicago. You know, we have a very diverse patient population, you know, from moms and babies to uh, many students at UIC to many older adults with many chronic conditions. About, let's say, 40% of our patients uh, have Medicaid as their insurance. As for a racial and ethnic mix of our patients, it's maybe about 40% African-American, 30% Hispanic, 20% uh, white, not uh, Hispanic, and, and maybe 6% Asian. I'm not a geriatrician. I'm not an Alzheimer's expert. It can be hard sometimes to get any of my patients into our memory clinic. So, you know, we have few geriatricians in our organization, even in an academic health center. So I'm just a practicing family doc who, you know, does his best to try to, you know, meet the needs of my older patients. And I try to leverage technology whenever I can and wherever I can to to help me be more efficient and and take the best care of, of our patients. Yeah. And tell, tell me a little bit about that background, because we've known each other a long time, Carl, you know, from medical school days at uh, the University of Illinois, Chicago. I mean, you have a combination where I can see your interest in kind of using and, and the positions you've also ta- taken apart from being a practicing family physician in an academic center with the work you've been doing around informatics. So can you give us a little bit about your background uh, also in sort of your training and before you went to medical school? It's really been my calling for many decades. I think it was even in high school when I realized uh, I had a, had a very uh, prescient uh, brother who shared that you know there'll be a future in computers and medicine. And I had uh, gotten a background in programming computers when I was a kid and went on to get a computer science degree from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, but also did my pre-med requirements at the same time. And it was nice that they allowed us to do have a goal-directed sequence. You know, I wanted some practical experience. I worked in industry, worked up in the suburbs of Chicago at Baxter Healthcare when they were a Fortune 100 company. But I always knew I was going back to med school at some point, and I eventually did at, at uh, UIC. And you were a wonderful uh, mentor uh, as a few years older in med school, but you guys did a great job of orienting us as first-year medical students, and I always appreciated that, uh, I think, when you were president of your class. So really, it's been a lifelong love of, of trying to be able to leverage technology and computers. Uh, I didn't know for about 10 years that the field was called informatics. I think I was walking the halls of the medical school, and they had a sign up on the wall that said, are you interested in computers and medicine? It was like, holy cow, it's speaking to me. And uh, I to, and they said, come to NIH and the National Library of Medicine. So I spent two months there during medical school and, and learned from some of the founders of the field. And it was a great experience. So I've just really tried to tie that into my career and, and leverage technology to help be a better primary care doc now, but also to help other clinicians use technology to deliver better care for their patient populations as well. And that's great. And then Ruffy, how did you end up meeting Carl or how did you start working together and get to know each other? 
It was a fortuitous event. We've had this Center for uh, Genomic and Computational Medicine funded by NSF and supported by several companies for some time. And Carl came to one of the meetings. And we started to chat, and it became very clear to me that the kind of breadth that Carl had and the the kind of questions uh, that he would bring in are really a function of the kind of patients, the diverse patients he sees in Chicago and their problems. And of course, you know, their aspects of this seem to me very, very relevant for studying dementia and the brain-related neuro disorders that we were studying. So there came an opportunity for us to write a proposal together to the Discovery Partners Institute, which had just about formed, I think. And that was on neurodegenerative diseases. Uh-huh. In that, you know, we just sort of took off, I think, his, his uh, ability to go and bring in a patient perspective and, and take these tools and methods that we were discussing and give us feedback, I think has been very, very valuable. That's terrific. No, it sounds like you found yourself and found uh, likeness and complementariness. That's really important in team-based science and how we work together to solve these complex problems. And Carl, I just wanted to get back a little bit into that complex problems that you see in your practice. And that's, you know, we invest a lot of time as family physicians, as primary care physicians in entering information into the electronic health record in hopes that it delivers some more information back to us. Um, That was always sort of the promise of, you know, working in electronic health records that it will be, you know, once you digitize things and you collate and organize them, they become easier to search and find information than, say, going through written records that aren't as structured. Where do you think we're at right now in sort of leveraging sort of what is in the electronic health record to identify early the diagnosis of a condition like Alzheimer's disease? Where are some of the, you know, things that are working well? Where are some of the opportunities where we may consider improvements so that we can get the most out of that information we've been entering? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, no one wants to just be a data entry clerk. And for many years, it feels like that's what we've been. You know, one of the biggest sources of data, I think, you know, will become the patients too, that we don't always have the time to do the screening in our 15 or 20 minute visits. And we can try to get our extended staff, medical assistants to try to help input some of that data, but they're getting strapped just as well. So you're really, you know, making some of these tools available to patients to to complete before the visit, you know, is really important. And and they're the ones, you know, that that do have a little bit sometimes more of the time to to make sure that this data can get entered. So I think that's a, a huge still on somewhat untapped resource for us to to make sure that we can make it easy for patients to be able to do this kind of work. And when they don't or can't, then obviously in the clinic, uh, maybe still the best time to do it. You know, it's just really important to get the data in one place that we can start to build on. And to me, some of the basics are, you know, we learned the mini mental status exam in medical school. We, you know, I was a first faculty position at the University of Missouri. A geriatrician taught me about the mini-cog, and I, I loved it. It was a simple, quick way to, to screen. You know, more recently, I've utilized tools like the MOCA, and, uh, and now we've gotten some grant funding with Northwestern to, to work on deploying patient-reported outcome measures and mm-hmm. cognitive functions short form you know, that can be used through that as well. 
So there's lots of questionnaires that are out there, but I think getting them, I think some have pointed out that sometimes there can be a proprietary nature to some of these. Sometimes you can just get permission to do it. Sometimes it's just putting the score in. If you can't put the whole screening instrument inside the medical record, you know, working with your IS group, uh, if it's not already in your electronic health record, you know, usually there's some way to get at least one of these forms in there. And to me, this is just kind of the basics and starter set of you need something. And even if you can't, like I said, uh, do it all electronically, or there might be some permission issues because you've been trying to do a clock draw. Obviously, uh, you want to have patients do that uh, on paper. And if you can't get them to do it electronically on a tablet, you know, just even putting the ultimate score in there can be useful. That can be tracked and graphed over time, I think is is important as a first starter set. So lots of opportunity to do this better. You know, I think we're at a cusp of, you know, making this more accessible, making more accessible to patients, the clinicians. I think, you know, there's a huge growth that's going to be happening now that a lot of this stuff, the basics have been done. And that's where I think, you know, we hopefully can take it to the next level. And that's where it's been great to partner with somebody like Professor Iyer and his team to, you know, look at ways to do novel ways of using the data that's in the EHR and coming up with more sophisticated predictive models beyond just a a simple screening tool. Yeah. And Carl, you know, you bring up an interesting point as you were talking and I was listening. I hope Ravi could maybe comment on this. That's sort of like when we get streams of data, right? What you just expressed, Carl, is there's a lot of choice out there about how people can document, you know, a cognitive screening tool. Then there's many cognitive screening tools and people pick different things, right? So there's ways you can handle that in data, right? One of them is standardization, right? Like UOFI will only use this tool. Everybody needs to learn it. Everybody needs to use it the same way. And then the other way is that you kind of figure out that you have these diverse tools that might be answered in slightly different ways and versions that are modified because of physicians practice. They won't do it exactly the same way with fidelity all the time. Is there an opportunity, I guess, Ravi, if you think about it from a data side, right, based on how do we use these sort of diverse tools that are complementary, that are not perfect, without having to go and say, we can't use any of this because you didn't use all the same measures the same way? Is there a way to save information, I guess, you know? It's a very good question, you know, and, and it sort of the brings us to the root of how and why how do we process information? We process information that is mostly, it's got noise, it's somewhat imperfect, but in that sea of uncertainty and, and things being imperfect, we are able to go and make very good decisions. I should say, you guys, you and Carl and neurosurgeons, and this is continues to happen what we started is to say, why is it that we can't invent a process that also learns much the same way as we learn and can get better and develops an understanding of the underlying science or takes advantage of it? The similarities between the tools then become more important when you actually do the analysis than the differences because differences sort of fade into the noise, which can be handled. It's really interesting. And uh, thanks for bringing that perspective, you know, about handling diversity of data, because I think that's been a struggle, right? Like everybody feels like, oh, we can't use this because we're all using this in different ways. And 
And then people struggle because they've learned certain things in their career different ways to screen for cognition that they'll have to relearn and retrain. But if there's some ways we can save this information and find that sameness, as you're saying, in the data rather than the differences, that can help us. And and if I can build on that, Ravi, a little bit is for our audience, right? There's a sometimes a fear as they're hearing about these data-driven tools, about using things such as AI. And for many, that's you know, symbolizes artificial intelligence or ML or machine learning as these sort of practices of iteratively growing and learning with information. Tell me a little bit about your view of sort of what are we going to need to deal with a condition like early diagnosis? Do you sense like the computer or the the data streams and the, the models we use will replace the human or the trained physician in that experience? Or is it something more of a augmented intelligence where it's the tools with highly complex, highly diverse data at large volumes being organized in a way that can help people that are ready to pick up their own intuitions and clues as humans and those two things to work together. Where do you see this kind of going? Is it going to be more the replacement model or kind of this augmented model? You know, this is this is also a very good question, as, as Carl and I often discuss this. Very early on, when I, I think, first went to Mayo Clinic and they asked me to come and give a talk, and here I was, you know, very uh, proud of my work, thought, Boy, I really can give a and and these surgeons meet very very early, much too early for us. And I started. I said, "Look, we have built these tools. It can do this and it can do that, and and it can really tell you tell the surgeons where which are the boundaries of of surgery." And and as soon as I said that, one of them put up his hand and and said, "Look, I have to tell you this." Imagine you are lying on my operating theater, my operating table, and they've given me all this information about you, but when I open you up, what's inside is not really the same as the information that I have. So he sort of flicked his uh, finger. He said, I have to make a decision like this. Mm. And he said, your machine, Ravi, will never do that. And I, you know, the whole audience broke up into laughter that that made my response so much easier. And I said, you know, it's not going to replace you anytime soon unless it's possibly the robot that becomes intelligent, but it's going to help you. And in the end, I think it's going to grow much like our knowledge of medicine will grow and the, the physician, the human, and the machine I believe we'll be very good partners. And he came up after that and he said, that was a great answer. I would really like that. And I have sort of built a friendship uh, for over a long time. So I believe that's what is happening. We are learning from the data. We are also, we are incorporating into the artificial intelligence models the domain knowledge, the expertise of people like you, Raj, people like Carl, and the domain expertise of the neurosurgeons and their understanding the impact of recent drugs. When you do that, you are really underlying the learning and the iterative process by which the machine learns becomes much closer or is becoming closer and closer to the iterative process through which we learn. 
Yeah, and that's the key thing. I, I think we we think these are static, right? Like because we've always thought of them as algorithms that we use and we plug in a value from one time point and that's going to tell us what happens in the future. But these systems we're talking about are iterative. They, they've got to learn and see as new information comes in, how do we get better? And that's sort of the longitudinal nature of this where we're constantly learning. But I wanted to bring up just you know a little bit about two issues, uh, as, uh, and then I want to finish on sort of where you, you are doing your work together. And the first one is, apart from data being very diverse, there's a missingness. Sometimes there's not complete data for somebody in uh, information. And, and some of that missingness is not missingness as random. It could be due to issues around who gets access, who gets to be seen, who gets time to get questions answered. So, so how do we handle from a data side questions around missingness and fairness of our learning that we do together and improve and reduce some of those biases by what we train our, our uh, machine learning on? Let me take a, a, a crack at it, and then I think I'd really love to hear what Carl's view is. This is something that the math doesn't do very well. Fairness is not something that the math does very well. So we are, we are really learning something that is new and important. People may not show up because they didn't have a good experience the time before. They are getting older and they sort of think, is it really worthwhile for me to go? Consequently, what happens in, in, in dementia kind of situations is the gaps between the subsequent assessment of the patients, they're not always constant or, or near each other. So you have to just like you know, the physician sees you at different times, the machine has to learn to go and accommodate for that. And it accommodates in this case because dementia is a slow-moving disease. So that kind of accommodation is easier. The fairness is something that has really come to fore. And I must say, of all various places in the in the US that I've seen fairness being handled, the diversity is probably handled better at Chicago than anywhere else that I've seen. So I really applaud you guys, uh, the, the UI Health, for bringing even more people into it, the clinics that you have in the field, and the ideas of having these innovation clinics, I think is uh, the way to go to reduce bias and fairness, which we all acknowledge is there and is very much present in healthcare. Yeah. And yeah, Carl, if you wanted to add a comment on that about sort of the, you know, the aspect of fairness and how we want to deal with that. I mean, I think it's important that we're also engaging our patients in, in the outcomes that we're trying to achieve and the communities that we're working. To me, you know, making sure that we're building any models on you know, diverse patient populations is key. And I, I think that's a uh, crux of what we're trying to make sure that we can add and bring to the table at the University of Illinois. So I think that's really important. And I love the fact that you use the word augmented intelligence. I I think I heard that five years ago when I met Professor Iyer at, at the Mayo Clinic at a conference, AI conference, and it's really stuck with me that, you know, there are certain things I, I wouldn't mind if AI would replace me having to write a prior auth, but there's other things that, you know, holding a patient's hand or, or comforting them, you know, it's never going to do. And so I, I think there's a, a, a role for it to help and assist us to be better clinicians. Yeah. And as we wrap up then for today, I just wanted to ask your viewpoints on everybody wants this or assumes that this technology, these capabilities are going to be showing up at our desktop tomorrow, 
right? Like we'll be able to use chat GPT or something like that to ask, does this person have a dementia, right? What is your thought or what is your prognostication as sort of the work you've done as uh, how much steps do we have to take before these become sort of commercial available in practice? I mean, it is moving fast. You know, our EHR vendor had at a national conference just a month or two ago demonstrated that they are embedding ChatGPT into an electronic health record to pilot it, to test it. And there were some times where I thought I did a better job than I could in responding to a patient's message. And sometimes they're saying that it's more empathetic than sometimes what I might write, but I'm hurried and, and out of time. But it is moving fast, but it will take some time. And that's where a lot of the hard work is, is how to embed this into the workflow of busy clinicians. And we still got a long way to go, um, but it's it's happening. So it's exciting. Yeah, and we, uh, you know, for a short, like, quick summary today in our thirty minutes, we really appreciate both your time today, Dr. Kokadorfer and Dr. Iyer, letting me visit with you and talk about an area of growth that has a lot of interest in primary care. And uh, we'll wrap up our session today, and really appreciate both of your time, and look forward to our next session of the Brain Toss coming up in the future. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thank you to our expert faculty and to you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future topics, please contact us at podcast at thebraintrust.com. For more episodes of The Brain Trust, please visit our website, thebraintrustproject.com. You'll find transcripts, speaker disclosures, instructions to claim CME credit, and other Alzheimer's resources as well. Subscribe to this podcast series on Healthcare Now Radio, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you tune into the next episode of The Brain Trust.